This is the Bible Line, a live radio call-in program with Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is the senior pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. And for the next hour, he's available to answer your questions, providing biblical insight and wisdom for everyday Christian living. Our phone lines are open, and if you have a question, you may call 525-1859 locally, or outside the immediate area, call toll-free 877-924-7980. Now let's join Dr. Carl Brogy. Study and show yourself approved of God as a workman who is not ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. I welcome you this hour to the Bible line. If you are a first-time listener, we're so glad that you could join us here at 88.7, whether you're local or live streaming through the Internet. For the next hour, we will be taking people's questions. Maybe there's a challenge in your personal life or ministry, or you're trying to understand a text of Scripture or its doctrinal application. If we can be of help, all you need to do is pick up the phone. Again, the local 843 South Carolina Exchange is 525-1859, or you can reach us toll-free at 877, the call letters of the station, 877-WAGP980. Many people just text us. They email us right here into the studio and so the email address is tbl for the Bible line, tbl at wagp.net. When you call, we do give preference to live callers in this new month of June. We're so glad you're listening. And so we always give preference to live callers. So if you want to go on the air, uh, we'll put you on. Some people aren't comfortable going on the air, but they want to simply dictate their question and we are certainly happy to receive it that way as well. So let's go ahead, Rick. We'll get started here this morning and jump in by God's grace with both feet. Very good. Uh, Michelle writes, My son asked, When Christ died and preached in hell, what was that about? What about that chasm between heaven and hell? And Michelle would like you to give a teen, uh, <laughs> an answer from a teenager's capacity. Well, uh, it's in reference to uh, what happened between the time Christ's body was laid in the tomb and the time he rose from the dead. Uh, The Bible affirms he went on a preaching mission, for Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit, in which, in his Spirit, he went also and made proclamation to the spirits now in prison. So he's describing from the time Jesus was laid down in the tomb uh, before sundown on Friday and before early Sunday morning as dawn was arriving when he was raised from the dead, uh, he went on a preaching mission. So he was put to death in the flesh but made alive in the spirit doesn't say he was made alive in the flesh. Now, he was because the text goes on to affirm that very truth uh, about an appeal for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ in verse 21. So his resurrection is not spiritual, as some have taken this verse out of context to say, well, Jesus didn't literally physically come out of the grave. He just rose up spiritually, and he raises himself up in our hearts and That's heresy. The Bible teaches a literal, physical, actual, bodily resurrection. None of the accounts can be taken in any other fashion. But after he'd been put to death 
in the flesh, alive in the spirit, he went and made proclamation to some spirits who are now in prison. So, Michelle, I'm going to point you to this Sunday's message because I'll actually be addressing this topic, not as the entire sermon, but we'll be touching on it. But with that said, there was a group of fallen angels that had committed such a heinous, wicked, terrible crime that they are in eternal bonds. Uh, Jude makes a comparison uh, between the people of Sodom and these fallen angels. Uh, Jude makes this statement. He says, now I remind you, though you know all things once for all, that the Lord, after saving a people out of Egypt, subsequently destroyed those who did not believe. And angels who did not keep their own domain but abandoned their proper abode, he is kept in eternal bonds under the darkness for the judgment of the great day, just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them. So there's a comparison between what the people of Sodom did, leaving the natural design that God created, as did this group of angels. And again, we'll discuss it in great detail this coming Lord's Day. But with that said, they are in eternal bonds. And so there was one section in the demonic world that did not hear of Christ's victory through the cross when he shouted, it is finished. There are different kinds of demons uh, in the world today. Um, but there are some who are in eternal bonds, and Peter describes them in Second Peter 2 as being in Tartarus. So you ask about this chasm. Uh, they weren't technically in Hades or Abraham's bosom. They are in Tartarus, which is a section of God's um, place of judgment. And eventually, uh, Satan and all of his angels will end up in the lake of fire. So Anyway, uh, that's the short answer. Uh, come this Sunday, and we'll give a far more detailed answer. Let's go to our next caller. All right. We've got a live caller standing by. Thanks for holding. Good morning. You're on the Bible line. Good morning. Yes, thanks for calling. How can we be of help today? I'm Latin Stevens, and I'm 10 years old, and I have a question for you. Okay, great. I'm glad you called. In Genesis if God knew that Adam and Eve would dis- disobey him, right. why didn't he create the world with sin firsthand? Why didn't he create the world with what? Sin firsthand? Okay, so um, so here's the deal. Uh, when God created man, and it's a great question, he created him in his image. And there are many... Um, when we speak of man being made in the image of God, and that's how the Bible describes man. In other words, there's a reflection of God in his creation, and specifically in men and women. And so, for instance, in Genesis 1.26, it says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image according to our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So God made the first original two persons to be male and female, and those are fixed things from birth. Uh, when God makes a man, he makes him to be a man his whole life. When he makes a woman, he makes a woman to be a woman her whole life, in spite of what people are saying. 
And one aspect of being made in the image of God is that we're free moral agents. What that basically means is we have a choice. In other words, if all God did was create us so that we could obey him only, which is, I think, what you're asking, if all we could do was obey God and God made us so that we would just always, 1,000% of the time, obey him, then we really wouldn't be people. We'd be more robotic. We'd be like a pre-programmed computer. But part of being made in the image of God is that you have a choice. And so for a person to have a free will, they had to have a choice. And so there was a testing period in which God gave man the opportunity to choose one way or the other. And so God will say in Genesis here, from any tree of the garden you may eat freely, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat from it you will surely die, Genesis two sixteen and 17. So God commanded the man saying, from any tree of the garden you may eat. So just by virtue of the fact that God made a command implies a choice, and then the choice is very clearly spelled out. Uh, Any tree except one. And of course, you know the rest of the historical account that man chose to rebel against God. And in that day, just as God said, he died. He didn't immediately die in the sense that God said, Gabriel, get the golden shovel and dig two graves for Adam and Eve. But God said in the day, and it's actually emphatic in Hebrew. In other words, it means it's emphasized. It's, we might say it's underlined in red. It's highlighted in yellow, meaning the very day you eat, you'll die. And they did die that day. They died on the inside spiritually. Uh, from that time on, man is dying physically. We're born getting older. And the fact that uh, we are getting older and aging puts man on notice about how temporal this life is and how we need to be ready for the next. So there's physical death, and when our body gives out, if we haven't made critical decisions as to how we can be forgiven, then beyond inside death or what we call spiritual death, and so God describes people as living yet dead, uh, Paul will say you're dead in your trespasses and sins, but God made you alive together with Christ. Um, so when we're born again, we're made alive on the inside, but if that doesn't happen, then we will not enter the kingdom of God. Jesus said you must, you must, you must be born twice to enter the kingdom of God. And so the most important decision that you can ever make in your life is to make sure that you are born a second time. You can tell me your birthday, your physical birthday, but you have to have a spiritual birthday to enter the kingdom of God. And if we don't, we die not just the um, inside death and the outside death, but then there's what the Bible calls eternal death. It's also called the second death in the Bible where a person is forever separated in a place that God doesn't want man to go. So this is all part of God. Uh, creating man as being made in his image. Of course, people say, well, then why even create him? Well, God made man for his own pleasure. He made man so that we could have a relationship with him, that we could enjoy him. Did God know man was going to sin? Of course he did. God wouldn't be God if he didn't know. But that did not in any way, shape, or form 
change our free will and our desire to rebel against God. And I might add that not only did Adam rebel, you and I rebelled too, because in Romans 5 and verse 12, it says we all sinned in Adam. In other words, uh, I know it's kind of a foreign concept today, but the Bible teaches solidarity, uh, the solidarity of the human race, that there's a connectiveness that in Adam all sinned, and that's why in Adam all die. Great question. Appreciate it. Let's go to our next question. All right. Very good. 843-525-1859. If you have a question on today's Bible line, David from Newton, North Carolina, writes in 1 Timothy 4.1, when he talks of people falling away from the faith, are these saved or lost people? And, of course, the verse reads, but the Spirit explicitly says that in later times some will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons. Well, uh, this is an important question. In fact, we addressed an entire message on it last Sunday, uh, David. So I might direct you to searchthescriptures.org or to communitybiblechurch.us. If you go to communitybiblechurch.us, you can click on last Sunday's message, and you will find an entire a message on it. I actually begin the sermon in 314 because uh, the, notice the very first word in 4.1 is the word but. It's a contrastive particle. In other words, he's making a contrast between what he just said and what some falsely have believed. They're called apostates. And so when we speak of apostasy, uh, we're not saying an apostate is an someone who believes in atheism or agnosticism or Buddhism or Hinduism or some other ism that you might think in your mind. Uh, No, uh, certainly apostasy allows for fertile ground uh, for these other heresies to take place. But apostasy, the word apostasia, uh, it's rendered fall away, is always in reference to someone who Um, is not a true Christian, but appears to be. So when we speak of apostasy falling away, the concept is is not simply in reference to false religions. It has a much more narrow concept. Specifically in Holy Scripture, it, it applies to someone who claims to be a Christian, then falls away from the faith. And you'll notice it's articular here, not from faith, but from the faith. And so the articular use of the word faith is in reference to that that body of truth uh, that we believe in that we call the Bible. So every apostate is an unbeliever, but not every unbeliever is an apostate. There are certainly people who've never heard the good news, the plan of salvation, so they cannot fall away from truth that they've never heard before. They're unbelievers because they've never heard the gospel, whereas an apostate has a familiarity with the faith, but he's walked away from it. He's rejected it. And the Spirit, here a reference to the Holy Spirit, explicitly says, Paul is underscoring it, that in latter times some will fall away from the faith. Now, he doesn't say in the last days, uh, though certainly there's one aspect of the last days that refers to the end of the age, but technically, biblically, the last days began with the death, burial, resurrection, and the ascension of Christ. The writer of the Hebrews understood it that way. God spoke in many portions and in many ways, but in these last days, he has spoken through his son. Peter on Pentecost, after they had witnessed the miracle of the Holy Spirit 
coming to indwell people is evidenced by their speaking these real languages that they had not previously learned. He stood up and said, well, this is what the prophet Joel said would happen in the last days. So we've been in the last days since the, the time of Christ upon the earth. And and it's viewed that way because the monumental event in the mind of the early church was the salvation that had been prophesied, but then had been procured through the actual work of the Messiah. And so it's the greatest of all events, and the culmination of what Jesus accomplished at Calvary will be someday realized when he comes back and he catches up his church. And so there's the last days, there's the last of the last days, but then there's the latter times, and that phrase is used towards of that time frame that happens at the end of the age. So in other words, God speaks of a time frame when people will turn from the faith. Now, if you've been with me in my prophetic series that we've just started, I think we've done just um, four messages so far. I'm planning to do at least 15. I might do more. But we're looking at different aspects of God's prophetic plan. And if you've been with me in that series, then you know that nothing prophetically has to happen for the second coming to take place, whereas the rapture, that's a uh, excuse me, nothing has to happen for the rapture to take place, whereas the second coming, it's a prophetically driven event. All kinds of things have to happen for the second coming. And so God will often speak of things that will happen about the second coming in like a one-world government that's coming. There are people who are committed to globalism, to a one-world economy. They just met in Davos a few weeks ago, and uh, they want to create a one-world economy. Even our own president commissioned recently by executive order the need to study the possibility of digital money uh, under the guise of the Federal Reserve. That would all be fitting with a one-world economy that would will someday unfold. There'll be a one-world government. There'll be a one-world leader. And even moves towards that one-world government are becoming prevalent. You know, we see this one-world uh, health organization uh, that... Uh, you know, is being unfolded in these one-world strategies. And someday the world will say, well, we might as well just have a one-world government. And that will happen after the church is caught up. But the latter times refers to that last time frame. So when you see prophecy being fulfilled, like Israel back in the land, Moses identifies that as happening in the latter days before the Messiah's second return. We have witnessed that in our lifetime, and we're witnessing this apostasy that will ultimately plant the seeds for the apostasy of all apostasies, which the Antichrist will bring about because he will come with great signs, wonders, and miracles, and people who had not received the love of the truth so as to be saved will be deceived by him, and they will embrace a lie as a judgment from God for their unwillingness to respond. And so when he describes the Spirit explicitly says that people will fall away from the faith, he's not describing a true Christian. A true Christian, when he is born again, has an eternal hook in his heart. The one that believes has eternal life. You cannot lose something that is eternal. And so anyone who teaches that eternal life can be lost, not only is it an oxymoron, it's a direct contradiction over 150 different passages in the New Testament. 
And so our salvation is secured eternally by the Father, by the Son, and by the Spirit. And I cover the three members of the Godhead and how they secure our salvation in our Back to Basics series that's available at searchthescriptures.org. And it's the very first lesson, and I spend five weeks on that specific subject. But John, for instance, in 1 John says, children, it is the last hour. So again, there's this sense of imminency. When we speak of the imminent return of Christ, we're saying that he could come at any moment. Now, there are Christians who don't believe in imminency, who are what we are called, they're called post-tribulationists. They believe the church will go through the tribulation. In other words, they don't believe Jesus could come back today. Why? Because the Antichrist has to come on the scene. The great one world government has to be unfolded. The great tribulation period needs to uh, be enacted. None of those things have happened yet. So they deny imminency. Some who are amillennial, who just write off the entire tribulation period, they just say there's just one coming event. Jesus is coming back. He's going to take us all to heaven. That's the end of it all. They end up spiritualizing prophecy. And so they would say they believe in an imminent return, but they deny all the prophetic passages that deal with the future for Israel because they say the church has replaced Israel. But the New Testament writers clearly believe that there's a future for Israel. They believe what God said in Jeremiah, that as long as the sun and the stars and the moon are up there in the sky, God will have an eternal commitment to the people of Israel. But John writes, it's the last hour, and just as you've heard that Antichrist is coming, as Antichrist, we might say with a capital A, that one world leader, even now many Antichrists have appeared. There have always been people in the history of the church who have been against Christ, who come in the place of Christ with their false message. From this we know it's the last hour. Then he makes this statement about these false teachers. These are apostates. Listen, he said they went out from us. That is, they were part of the church. Why were they a part of us? Because they had a confession of faith, and you took it at face value. They looked Christian. They walked like they were Christians. They talked like they were Christians, but they really weren't. They went out from us, but they were not really of us. How do we know? Because or for if they had been of us, they would have remained with us. We call that perseverance. One of the marks that a person is born again is that they will never renounce Christ. They will persevere. You're not saved by perseverance, but if you are saved, you will persevere. They would have remained with us, but they went out so that it should be, would be shown that they all are not of us. So you've heard me say it many times that if you have it, salvation, you can't lose it. And if you've lost it, then you never really had it to begin with. So these false teachers are energized by the devil, by the doctrines of demons, and that's what we're seeing in our day. We're seeing demonic doctrines like never before. Who could have ever imagined that a Supreme Court nominee now, you know, to serve in the fall term when asked by one of our United States senators, what is a woman? She says, I can't give an answer. You can't give an answer to what a woman is? No, I can't give an answer to that. That's a doctrine of a demon. When someone is convinced that they can change their gender, and gender and sex are intertwined, they're inseparable, biblically speaking. God created them male and female, period. 
A man can't become a woman. A woman can't become a man. The, that teaching that is now permeating our public schools, you need to get your kids out of the public schools. They are brainwashing your children. You should come Thursday night, if you're listening to me, June the 7th, to Community Bible Church. We will have the homeschool seminar that we hold for people who are considering homeschooling. You need to get your kids out of that demonic public school system because they're teaching doctrines of demons there. And yes, it's happening in Beaufort County, and you're a buffaloed if you don't think it's happening because it is happening. They're teaching Earth Day as something to be celebrated. That's a doctrine of a demon. It's a religion of sorts where we worship the planet, where we worship Mother Earth. And so these are all doctrines of demons that are being taught in our day. When you have these people who say it's a woman's right to abort her little baby, and even the governor of Virginia saying that it would be okay to kill your baby after the child is born, those are doctrines of demons. And that's what we're seeing in these latter times being unfolded. Just uh, for clarification, that yes. was the last governor of Virginia, not the, the current. last governor. Yeah. That's right, not the not the current one. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> okay. Don't want to don't want to rag on him. So, All right. Good yeah. deal. Uh, while you're on the subject of last Sunday's message, Bert from Guyton, Georgia, would like you to expound on it about the fast moving lights that pilots see in the night sky that may be demons. Are holy angels warring with these fallen angels and we only see bright lights? He thought it was quite fascinating. Well, you know, uh, these pilots are seeing these lights in the sky, and many of you have seen, you know, actual films that have come from the cockpit of an F-35 or an F-18 and, and even off of some naval ships where they've spotted these lights that are inexplainable in terms of the way they move, the way they travel, the speed that they're moving at. In my humble judgment, what we are seeing is a setup for how we might be explained once the church is gone and raptured. Um, I I, I mentioned, uh, you know, the Pope, and again, this is a doctrine of a demon, of his willingness to baptize aliens. In that statement, he was affirming that there's life on other planets. The Bible teaches to the contrary. By the way, he's the same Pope who has denied the uniqueness of Christ as being the only way to heaven. He's the same Pope who's waffling on the issue and subject of homosexuality when one of his leading teachers who leads a gay church wrote him, and you read his response, it was anything but clear, articulate, and biblically founded. But there's a day that's coming when the church will be caught up where millions of people will be missing off of the planet. It will bring total havoc upon the planet. What will be the explanation? I think one of the explanations that they may come up with is that alien life forms have gotten rid of these troublemakers and they've removed them from planet Earth. And of course, that's how they're viewing us more and more as troublemakers because we are proclaiming truth. We're saying that You know, there used to be a time when you'd get into a discussion with someone and they might say, well, I'm not sure I believe the Bible. 
and you'd kind of go back and forth, and you'd give your rationale as to why you thought the Bible was true and authoritative and the only plumb line. And and now people, when you get into these issues, they just kind of smile at you. They don't argue, and they say, well, that's good for you. Your truth is your truth, and my truth is my truth, and everything's relative. Everything's subjective. In fact, if you take a position, you take a position on some of these issues, you're deemed like as a homophobic, divisive, wicked person when all you're doing is speaking truth. So um, I will not be at all surprised when we get to heaven to find out that these lights that people are seeing are actually demonic forces that are setting the stage uh, through their physical display of light uh, for an alien explanation of how millions and millions and millions and millions of people. I mean, there's going to be total chaos when this happens. And for a period of time, people are going to be shouting peace and safety. Remember, after the church is raptured, it doesn't immediately commit that seven-year period. I think there's a short throw, but no one can save definitively. But there'll be a time when they'll be saying peace and safety. Okay, we've solved the problems now. All these divisive people are gone. Oh, yes, now we have our one world economy and our one world government. And then suddenly destruction will come upon them like birth pangs coming upon a woman who's pregnant. Anyway, it's a good question. Again, I'm not dogmatic on it, but I think that that's probably what we are seeing. I don't believe for one second, because the scripture speaks against it, that there's life on other planets. So then the question becomes, you know, and that's what the world is saying. Well, these are alien life forms. They're not, there is life, so to speak, out in the universe beyond human life. They're called angels, and they're fallen angels, and there's holy angels. I get this uh, daily devotional from uh, one of our members, and this one came across a few days ago, and it just so rings true with what you just said. Uh, I don't know who originally quoted this, but they said, first we overlook evil, then we permit evil, then we legalize evil, then we promote evil, then we celebrate evil, then we persecute those who still call it evil. That's correct. He's absolutely right, and uh, I've preached that very thing, that we have moved from a, um, a beyond the point of tolerating evil. We are celebrating evil. We are literally celebrating evil, uh, whether it's transgenderism or homosexuality or premarital sex or extramarital sex or any other evil that you can think of. And the world is throwing up its hands, and they don't know what to do. And there are certainly many moral people in the world who are not believers. And they're scared and they're frightened. And some believers are thrown off guard. And that's one of the reasons I'm doing this prophetic series, because we shouldn't be alarmed by what's happening. It doesn't mean that we give up. We don't grease the skids to bring in the second coming of Christ. We still stand for truth. We hold our light high. We act as salt in the midst of a culture that is forever rotting. But with that said, we recognize the ultimate victory is given to our Lord. He is going to rule and reign. Amen. All right. Shannon from Rapid City, South Dakota writes, there are a ton of Bibles on the market. I don't want to accidentally support any company or individual not biblically sound. Do you have any recommendations for a teen boy? 
Well, I do. So first, let's define for a moment what we mean in terms of a translation of the Bible uh, versus a version of the Bible. A translation, the term typically refers to one or a small group of people, two or three that have uh, created a um, expression of what God said versus a version. So we speak of the King James Version, the New American Standard Version Bible, the English Standard Version. Those are not done by a single person like the Living Bible. The LBT would be the Living Bible Translation. They're done by a team, usually hundreds of people that are involved in taking the original languages and putting them into the receptor language to which they are translating. Now, with that said, in the various versions, there is a couple different philosophies. There's what we might call a dynamic equivalent, and then there's what we might call a a formal equivalent. So there's literal or formal equivalents that, as best they can, they try to do a word-for-word translation from the original language into the receptor language. Whereas, um, unlike a literal or word-for-word translation, there's what we might call a thought-for-thought translation, and that's typically called a dynamic equivalent. And there are, there's a spectrum, we might say, of different kinds of translations. So the more literal translations on the one end might be, say, the NASB, the ESV, the King James, the New King James— And then as you move down the continuum to a less literal, you would have things like the New Living Translation or the Contemporary English Version or maybe even something like The Message. And The Message is a horrendous translation, just absolutely horrendous. Um, And so if I ever quoted it 20 years ago without having read it carefully, I apologize but I would not endorse it for a second. And by the way, I have a course called Bibliology. It's not for the faint in heart. There's over 500 pages of notes, but I believe it's section six in the course on Bibliology where we deal with various kinds of translations. Um, Rick, do you have Logos there available on your screen? And um, I actually can get online yeah, with Logos. Yeah, so, so pull up Logos, and let me see if I can give an example of, you know, maybe uh, what we would call, again, on the one end, you have literal translations. I suppose the most literal would be like an um, interlinear Bible. In an interlinear Bible, they will have the Greek text and below it the English equivalent. Um, the challenge with that is word order in Greek is different from word order in English. And so sometimes word order is rearranged from the typical order to underscore, or to emphasize a truth, or sometimes it's just different because Greeks spoke and thought a little bit differently than, say, we do in English structure. So a, um interlinear Bible would be certainly a little more challenging to read. So, um, again, there's the formal equivalent or a literal equivalent, and then there's the dynamic equivalent. The, 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 the goal of most Bible translators is to be as faithful as they can. And literal translations make the original language certainly more transparent. 
as to what it says. The problem with it, if you're pulling up the message, pull up uh, 1 Corinthians 6, if you will. I just want to give an example from 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and uh, pull up verses 9 through 11. And uh, I'll read it here out of the New American Standard, and then we'll read it out of the message, and I'll show you what's going on. So um, in a more literal translation, uh, it may be a little bit awkward at times to the modern ear. And so even there in a literal translation, sometimes idioms have to be uh, communicated or translated in a way that they're understandable. Whereas the challenge of a dynamic translation, which tends to be easier to read, is you have a certain amount of interpretive um, decisions that are going on as to what that phrase means or how it should be interpreted. And so, for instance, in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, in the New American Standard, it says, do you not know that the wicked uh, or the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor uh, the effeminate, or you could render it male prostitutes, nor homosexuals, um, or some say, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor swindlers, uh, slanderers will inherit the kingdom of God. And that is what some of you were, uh, Paul says, because God could save anyone, but you're washed, you're sanctified, you're justified. Now, in the message, uh, read uh, verses uh, at least 9 and 10, if you would. If you All have right, it. very good. Don't you realize that this is not the way to live? Unjust people who don't care about God will not be joining in his kingdom. Those who use and abuse each other, use and abuse sex, use and abuse the earth and everything in it, don't qualify as citizens in God's kingdom. Okay, stop right there. Now let's just think for a second what he left out. He left out uh, effeminate and homosexual offenders or sodomites. So one, he immediately erased what God said about homosexuality, and then he adds something. He not only subtracts those who use and abuse the earth— where is that in the Greek text? It's not in any text. In fact, it's not in any translation, but in Eugene Patterson's translation on the message. So what he did was heretical. He brought in something that was politically correct, worshiping the earth, uh, in order to um, make some green statement, I suppose, that's not even there. And so that's the problem with the far right side of a dynamic equivalent that becomes a total paraphrase is you have interpretation going on and you have a person's view of what God says or how they take what God said. Or sometimes like with Eugene Patterson, they just make up things and baptize it in God's name when it's not even there in the Bible. So in my view, what this person who writes, who what's the name of the person who wrote us? Um, um, from South Shannon. Dakota, Shannon. Shannon, you need a formal equivalent or a literal translation. In my view, the gold standard would be like the New American Standard. Uh, I, and most expositors use that. The ESV, the English Standard Version, has become popular in the last few years, uh, largely from people who jettisoned the NIV because the NIV ended up updating itself in 2010 on computer, 2011 in paper by making uh, some text more 
gender sensitive. And in the process, they changed singular pronouns to plural pronouns and, and actually changed the meaning of the text itself. And so when that happened, those who had uh, been using the NIV largely abandoned it and they went to the ESV. The reason they went to the NIV when it came out in the 70s was because they thought the New American Standard was a little bit too literal, a little bit wooden. Uh, Well, okay, but that's where a preacher can come in and explain the literalness and sometimes show the beauty of the literalness. But it's been updated three times since that time, as recently the NASB 2020. So um, I would recommend, like, either the—my first choice would be the New American Standard. Uh, that would be my first choice. But certainly, like, the New King James would be good, or the even the ESV, though it's not my first choice as a Bible expositor. And it's kind of interesting that those who exposit the Word of God verse by verse by verse— the, the, the single biggest translation amongst expositors is the New American Standard because they see the beauty of it. And I prepare in the original languages, and I see the beauty of what the NASB has done uh, in the English text. And really, a teenage boy should be as capable to handle the NASB as any adult. Of course, adult. absolutely. I mean, we've got 8- and 10-year-olds who are reading the NASB in our church, and they're following along, and that's, that's how they grow. That's how they learn. And so, yeah, you you want them. The one exception I would say, if someone had, say, a reading skill of, say, a first grader, and they couldn't seem to develop beyond that, then maybe something like the Living Bible would be, uh, I didn't say the New Living Letters, because, again, they went to some gender neutrality there. And so what I would direct Shannon to would be to go to search the Scriptures Uh, Type in in the search bar, Bibliology, and then go to Section 6, where I do an evaluation of English translations. And you can see all the fine nuance. So I might quote a verse from five different English translations and show you what's going on. And um, so it would help you to make a more intelligent decision. All right, very good. 843-525-1859. If you have a question on today's Bible line, Greg I. from Maine writes, What does the Bible say about women preaching? I personally read 1 Timothy 2 and interpret it as men are to preach to the mixed audience and hold the role of pastor-elder. But many have told me that it's not true, and examples are Phoebe or Priscilla, or that there are prophetesses. I believe the text in 1 Timothy 2 to be universal and not cultural. Regardless, I believe there is a correct and a wrong interpretation of the text, which determines how roles of men and women are viewed in the church. I would love insight to this and to the women used in the Bible. Well, the historical position that faithful Bible expositors have embraced for 2,000 years is being rejected. And the faithful position is what's known in theological terms as complementarianism. That is, that men and women are equal in their stature before God, but they complement each other in their roles, such that the uh, man is the head of the home, and the woman submits to his loving leadership. Uh, They are affirming the equality of men and women, but there are different roles. You can't have two heads, or you have a monster, and if you have no head, there's no real leadership. And so, again, children learn in the smallest microcosm of life how to respect authority as they see mothers looking to the father as the leader of the home. 
to, to be respected and to be followed. That's complementarianism in the home. That's being rejected. Some embrace complementarianism in the home because it's harder to get around, but they reject it in the church. They're called egalitarian. And egalitarian teaches that men and women are not only equal in their stature before God, but they can be equal in the roles and the functions that they play. And sadly, there are people today who call themselves complementarian, but who really are not. Maybe one popular Bible teacher would be, say, Beth Moore. She says, well, I'm complementarian. She's not. Uh, she teaches and preaches on in Sunday morning in churches in different places across the country. Now, her argument is, well, I'm here under the authority of the pastor. Listen, no pastor has authority to give you authority that God expressly forbids. And so God says in 1 Timothy 2 and verse 12, I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man. That's what he says. Now, look at the broader context. He's talking about worship in the church. And so we have parachurch organizations like Crew, who would argue that, well, this only applies to the local assembly, that this does not apply to a parachurch parachurch organization. Okay, well, what about the verses before it? I want a woman to adorn themselves with proper clothing, modestly and discreetly. Does that only apply to the local church and not the parachurch? Can a woman dress seductively in the parachurch, but just not in the local church assembly? That's just sheer nonsense. It's a denial of what God has plainly said. And last week, a major missions organization came out in defiance of what they have taught for their entire history and now said that if their missionaries want to be egalitarian and that women can preach over men, women can preach, they can be gifted with the spiritual gift of pastor teacher, but they can't serve in the office of pastor or elder, and they cannot preach and teach in a mixed audience, whether it's in the local assembly or some Bible study or some uh, cruise that they're teaching on or anything else that you can think of. And so God is clear, and he goes on, and he says, for it was not Adam who was first created, but it was, for excuse me, for it was Adam who was first created and then Eve. It was not Adam who was deceived, but the woman being deceived fell into transgression. So he's giving the reason. Verse 13 begins with the word for. He's giving the cause of Paul's statements that he makes in verses 11 and 12. Why should a woman not teach or have authority over a man? Because Adam, he says, was first created, then Eve. So... He is making it clear that in the order of creation, which has universal application in the family and in the church, the woman was called to be the man's help me. And then he goes on to say that it was not Adam who was deceived. Adam sinned with his eyes wide open. That's why we all die in Adam. His sin was greater than Eve. But it was the woman who was deceived. Why? Because women are more gullible? Certainly not. He's not teaching that. But she was deceived because she stepped out of her God-given role, and Adam let her do it. Adam just was standing on the sidelines, and he let his wife lead. And there are many men like that today. It's not, I think we should do this. They take the apple, and they eat it, and they let their wife leave, lead contrary to what God has said in his word here.
And so this is a travesty, and it's the travesty of the day in which we live, and it's a denial of the clear teaching of Scripture. Now, certainly, and again, I have a whole series of messages on this, but you raised Priscilla and Phoebe, um, you know, and Aquila, and Priscilla and Aquila, you find them in Acts 18, and you reference it. It says, now a Jew named Apollos, an Alexandrian by birth, an eloquent man, came to Ephesus, and he was mighty in the Scriptures. This man had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in spirit, he was speaking and teaching accurately the things concerning Jesus, being acquainted only with the baptism of John. And he began to speak out boldly in the synagogue. But when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. And they say, here it is. Priscilla, she's a preacher just like Aquila. Listen, here's Apollos. He had heard about the fact that Messiah was coming through John's ministry. But what he didn't know is that the things that John preached about had literally actually been fulfilled. And so uh, Priscilla joins her husband in sharing the good news with Apollos. They had both come to believe. They both had a, a testimony to share about how what John preached of the Messiah was fulfilled in Yeshua. But does the Bible say that Priscilla ever pastored a church or taught publicly or became the spiritual leader of a congregation? Not at all. In fact, as far as we know, Priscilla was not involved in any ministry activity contrary to 1 Timothy 2. She seems like a very godly woman who would not violate God's principles. So when you take a passage like this and try to build a biblical case contrary to what God has said elsewhere, you're violating the clear teaching of Scripture. And it doesn't matter if it's Priscilla Schreier, Tony Evans' daughter, who's teaching on cruises over mixed audiences, or whether it's Beth Moore or anyone else you can think of. uh, They're in violation of the clear teaching of the Word of God. And when you do that, you open the door up to gross error. Just study. And by the way, I cover this in three messages that I teach, I think, and taught in 2015 on the role of men and women in the church. You can find it at searchthescriptures.org. And I show in the history of the denominations that when the role of men to lead was abdicated, all kinds of error entered into the church. And so you look at the mainline Protestant denominations. What was one of the first things to go? Women can be preachers. Let's ordain women. What follows? An embracement of homosexuality, lesbianism, and on and on the errors go. All right, very good. Um, you know, along the same lines, Shay from Bluffton just uh, called in and dictated a question. He says, many churches these days have mass baptisms, and is it okay for women to help out with these baptisms? No. Now, that's a leadership role that men should play in the church. And sadly, what's happening in these mass baptisms is that many people are being baptized who are not born again. I, I responded to a question that someone uh, wrote me on Sunday afternoon, and so I called this dear family that used to be members of our church, and he lost a loved one, and he was going to be preaching at the funeral. And then he told me the church he joined. And I said, well, he said, I'm very impressed with it because they just baptized 300 people. 
Yeah, so did um, some other people here in the state of South Carolina, like Perry Noble. He used to do these mass baptisms. He baptized a 1,000 people one day. Oh, you say, hallelujah. You know, all these people are being saved. I met some of those people who were recipients of those mass baptisms who ended up visiting Community Bible Church who didn't even know the plan of salvation. Therein lies the problem. And, of course, that church that he mentioned, I said, I was one of the first elders of that church. In fact, and I didn't have time to share this with him, I wrote a position paper that the church officially embraced concerning the role of men and women in the church, and it was voted on by the entire congregation. Well, they obviously jettisoned that belief because Beth Moore preaches in that church on occasion. And so I wouldn't be impressed with the 300 or more baptisms because my guess is is that many of them are fakes and that these people have not been spoken to, um, found out if they really true believe. And I'm not saying it's impossible for a real preacher to baptize a lost person. But when you baptize someone who doesn't even know the gospel, then that's a real deficiency on the part of Uh, what a local assembly should do. Baptism is a local church ordinance, and it should be led by godly men. So, no, I don't think it's a good thing what's happening. But just let's say for the sake of argument, just for the sake of argument that it was all men at your church doing this. The fact that they're doing these mass baptisms, 99.9% of the cases, maybe you're in that less than 1%. These people have not personally been dialogued with face-to-face to to see if they even know what the plan of salvation is or even seeing if their life matches the confession they make. I have people who come to meet the pastor, and they receive Christ as their Savior, and maybe after I'll say, hey, I noticed um, on your form here you have two last names, but um, you're living at the same address. Are you guys been living immorally? Well, yes. Well, I said, well, just so you know, I cannot receive you as a member of Community Bible Church and take you the next level, the first step of obedience and baptize you if you're living in rebellion. And so you get this fixed, and then maybe we can talk about church membership. You think that happened in Perry Noble's mess? He was baptizing adulterers and fornicators. That guy was living in porn himself and living on all kinds of evil things. And yet he had the biggest church in South Carolina. These are the days we're living in. These are days of gross compromise. These are days where the truth is being jettisoned all in the name of church growth in numbers. Anyway, we're out of time. You hear the music. Thanks for being with us today. A homeschool seminar this Thursday, 6.30 p.m. Go to communitybiblechurch.us for details.